culture right now, when we use the word identity, we're usually referring to some kind of sense of being or self-understanding that frames our actions. Um, through our identity, our self-understanding, we communicate to others who we are, who we want them to see us as, and our identity, our fundamental understanding about who we are spills over into all of life. It kind of sets the agenda for all of our acts. One author says, identity drives life because it provides the energy and motivation for everything else. We live out of who we believe ourselves to be. In modern society, there's a lot of people who have an unstable identity or an identity based on a constantly in negotiation sense of, I think this is kind of who I am, but it's pretty fluid and maybe in flux. And there are a lot of people who have no idea who they really are, who they are really supposed to be. And so they go through the motions of living. Or maybe even more dangerous, they look to keep people in their life, maybe family or friends or maybe just celebrities or classmates or teammates, and they give too much power to those people to define who they are, which is really dangerous because every other person at best is only going to be able to offer you a half-truth into who your genuine identity is, which means half of it is a lie. Or even worst case scenario, you might, be, you might receive or embrace an identity given to you by someone that is absolutely founded on a lie. And that will have a domino effect in terms of how you move into the world. I mean, think about if you went through a phase in you know, junior high or high school where you were maybe very self-deprecating and the label that you used to come back to your own sense of self-identity was loser, right? I'm a loser, I'm a failure. If you hold that identity close to your heart, if that becomes wedded, if that label becomes wedded to your sense of identity, you will absolutely play out that script in every area of your life. The way you carry your, the way you carry your body into life and into the world, how you speak, what you choose to focus on, things that stand out to you, things that you will just completely miss. Our identity frames the way we see the world and the way we engage the world. And so Paul here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is making sure right out of the gate the Ephesians understand who God says they are. Not who they perceive themselves to be, not who they've been told by other people, even other well-meaning Christians maybe. God says, at the start of this book, you need to know who God says you are. And what does Paul say God says the Ephesian church are? Saints. Identity is often conferred through labels. Paul could have used any number of labels. To the blank in Ephesus, he could have just said Christians, he could have said disciples, he could have said people. He says saints, and that is significant. Now in our culture, most of us probably veer to an understanding of saints as sort of a class of superstar Christians. Certainly in the Roman Catholic Church, they have the veneration of saints. Christians who aren't regular Christians, they've distanced themselves because of working of miracles or some extraordinarily uh, God-glorifying life of sacrifice. That is not the way the Bible uses the term saint. Here, the term saint is being used to refer to everybody who's a part of the church, 
anybody who has sincerely given their life over to Jesus. And saint can also be translated as holy one. And a holy thing in the Bible is something which has been removed from common usage and is now something which has been dedicated for a divine purpose. It's been cleansed and washed and purified so that it can be used for divine purposes, no longer just ordinary purposes. Paul is saying here, every Christian is a saint. That is the fundamental label through which you are to understand yourself. How many people here, just by a show of hands, instinctively think of themselves as a saint? <laughs> awesome, Chuck does. <laughs> we won't ask your wife, Matt. We'll just trust. <laughs> what is the label that many, if not most, Christians attach to their fundamental identity? Sinner. Here's something interesting that may sound very, it might sound unbelievable, but I'm going to say it, and then I'm going to trust that you're going to do your homework to verify it. The word sinner or sinners is used over 40 times in the entire New Testament, but it's never used once in reference to people who have come to a faith, saving faith in Jesus. Never once. Never is a person who is now in Christ saved, redeemed, labeled as a sinner. Now, we want to be precise in our language. That doesn't mean that the Bible and the New Testament and even Paul's letters don't give clear instruction that Christians do sin. But there's a difference between being a saint who sins and being a sinner who sins. Because if you are fundamentally a sinner, then sin is in your nature and you're doing what your nature leads you into. Of course you sin because sinners sin. But if you are a saint who sins, that doesn't mean that you don't take responsibility for it or pretend that you're not, that you haven't sinned, but what you're able to do and what happens in Christ is that you're able to say, oh, that's actually not who I am. I'm not living out who I am. So if you are a Christian and you commit this sin, is that who you are or is that your behavior? The Bible said that's your behavior you're a saint. And what Paul's going to do through the book of Ephesians is to spend the first three chapters making sure you understand who you are, and then the next three to say, therefore, because you are a saint, live this way. But that's different than saying, you're a sinner, stop being a sinner, do unsinful things, because your core identity is defined by sin in that example. But all through the New Testament, the people of God are referred to by how they're defined in and through Jesus. Peter says, uh, oh, I lost myself in my notes. I've gone way ahead. There we go. You are a chosen race. 
You are a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people for God's own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies. You've been chosen by God for a divine purpose. God has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You have a high calling on your life. You were a sinner before you came to Jesus. That was your fundamental identity. Paul will say that in Ephesians 2. You were once dead in your sin, but now you've been made alive in Christ. When you were baptized, you came up out of the waters. You've now identified with Christ. You are now saints. You might not feel like a saint on an average Tuesday afternoon, but your identity isn't grounded in what you feel like. It's in what God says you are. And if you are a saint, then when you sin, you don't have to collapse into despair and say, this is who I am. This is always going to be who I am because I'm a sinner. No, that's actually unbiblical way of thinking. Some people think, well, that's a humble way of thinking. That's not a humble way of thinking. That's a self-sabotaging way of thinking. And I think it's often well-intended, but it's a temptation of the enemy for us to frame our entire Christian journey through, I'm a sinner just trying to make it. Now, again, we can say that. You know, when I say to my friends, I don't walk around to my non-Christian friends and say, you know, the Bible says I'm a saint, right? They're not going to have the cultural understanding. So I'm going to lead with things by saying, like, hey, I'm a sinner like you. And what I'm trying to communicate is I'm not perfect. I'm not a holier-than-thou person. But Paul wants the church to understand if you are a Christian whose fundamental identity is framed with language like I'm a sinner, and if that's your most um, common way of referencing yourself and thinking of yourself, that is something that you need to actually repent of. But ironically, it's not repent of this because you're a sinner. It's repent of it because you're a saint. You've got to repent of thinking of yourself as a sinner because that's not the way God sees and engages with you now that you have been washed and cleansed and saved and redeemed by the blood of Jesus. What might it look like for you to repent of referring to yourself as a sinner? What might it look like to instead begin to anchor your identity in God's word, which proclaims you in Christ to be a holy one, specially set apart for a divine purpose? This is the theological bombshell that Paul is going to unravel in these next three chapters. He doesn't really even start touching practical Christian living until he's drilled down who you are in Jesus because identity drives behavior. We live out of who we believe ourselves to be. So the first thing we learn is who we are, and you and we are saints. Number two, we find out where we are. Paul says, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Easy to skim over, but Paul says, I want you guys to know you are living in two localities at the same time, simultaneously. You are in Ephesus, and you are in Christ Jesus. Now, what Paul is not saying there, he is not promoting or teaching a kind of dualism. He's saying every Christian is in the world and in Christ at the same time. Not, there's parts of our lives where we live in the world and we kind of 
operate according to worldly values. But then if we go over here, we're Christians, and then we operate as a Christian. So on Sunday, in, um, when I go to Christian school, when I'm with my Christian friends, when I'm doing spiritual things, that's where I'm in Christ. And then the rest of my time, when I'm doing secular or regular or unspiritual things, I just kind of operate and maybe do the best that I can. Paul says, no, you are simultaneously in Ephesus and in Christ. This is not dualism where a part of your life is lived in Jesus, but then a part of it is just lived somewhere else. This is about two localities at the same time. Now, this is hard to wrap your head and heart around, and I was trying to think about an illustration that can help us to understand it, and this is the only one that I could come up with. <laughs> so if you think of Disney World, right, at any given point in Disney World, you're walking through Disney World, Everybody who is in Disney World is in Disney World, going about doing their thing. And most people in Disney World are thinking about consumption and extraction of experience. They've come to Disney World because they want to benefit themselves. They're wanting to take in as much food and entertainment and comfort and pleasure as possible in a short amount of time. But there are some specially designated people who get to be in Disney World, but also in Mickey Mouse. <laughs> and because they're in Mickey Mouse, the way they move into and through Disney World is very different. Their obligations as they move in Mickey Mouse and in Disney World are different. Because the people who get to be in Mickey Mouse are ambassadors of the kingdom. They have to represent Mickey Mouse. So they can't operate in Disney World the same way that everyone else does, right? You can't have, I couldn't put on a Mickey, I'd be in a lot of trouble if I put on the Mickey Mouse costume and then I just started heavily drinking and smoking and walking around Disney World <laughs> and just living with a, well, this is about me. Because to be in Mickey Mouse means an entire reframing of my identity and how I'm to move into and through Disney World. And it, the script is almost completely flipped. Everyone else in Disney World is thinking about what's in it for me, how do I extract experience, how do I consume these experiences. The person who's in Mickey Mouse thinks, how am I an ambassador of the kingdom? How do I bless and serve other people? How do I make sure they have fun? How do I bring the joy of the magic kingdom into the lives of the families and the individuals and the children that I come across? The whole mindset changes. The person in Mickey Mouse is occupying two localities at the same time, but because they're in Mickey Mouse, they engage in their environment in a completely different way. And Paul says to the church in Ephesus, you are in Ephesus, but you are in Christ Jesus. And because you're in Christ Jesus, that means you're going to be in Ephesus very differently. We are in Nelson. We are holy saints set apart for a divine purpose and for this season of life, everybody in this room has been planted here in Nelson. But we're all in Christ, which means we live here in Nelson in a way that reveals that we occupy a different field of authority. We occupy a different identity 
because we don't see ourselves as, and you can fill in the stereotypes, as typical Nelsonites. We are people in Nelson who are also in Christ. And this is that principle that if you've been around the church, you've probably heard it, is that Christians are to be in the world, but not of the world. We are to be engaged in culture and in life. We don't just, um, you know, go segregate ourselves off somewhere into a little commune and wait for Jesus to come back. We are to be in the world. We are to be in Ephesus, but we don't participate in the culture according to the default value and um, value, values and, and default um, kind of ultimate commitments that everyone else does around us. We operate in Nelson learning to live out as saints for the purposes of God according to his values. Paul says, Ephesians, you've been placed in, Eph- in Ephesus for a divine purpose. You are to live so that people recognize that you are in Christ. That's your true identity. Learn to live out of that identity. Now, again, Christians can go to extremes in this, but Paul is saying both at the same time. Be in Nelson and in Christ. We can be in Nelson and not really in Christ where we're so similar to the people in the culture around us that from the outside looking in, there'd be no difference. We operate the same way. We use the same language. We watch the same things. We use our money the same way. That's being in the world and of the world. But some Christians go the other way and say, well, yeah, we're just going to abstain from all the godless culture. And so we're just going to set up our own little holy huddle and make sure that we're in Christ, but not actually be in Nelson, not being a part of the community, on sports teams, in, um, in the schools, uh, making connections with, with neighbors, being a part of good um, public flourishing initiatives within the community. Paul says it's both. Be in the world, but be in the world in a way that is distinctive. And so we're living in Nelson in such a way that there is similarity. People realize we care about this place. We're investing in it, and we're invested in this community. But as they get to know us, they realize there are some differences in how Jeff lives out being in Nelson and how I do. Some of them are going to be similar, but there are differences too in terms of how Jeff uses his time, energy, and resources in the world but not of it. So here's an example of how that might play out, right? So take language. To be in the world, to be in Nelson, means that predominantly we're going to be speaking the same language, not just um, English, but we use common parlance so that we can connect with people in our workplaces and in times of recreation. But, and this is what Paul's going to get to later on, you don't use your language in the same way that the world does. Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is useful for the building of building up of other people. You're going to use a common language. You're going to be similar that way. But you're not going to be a people who lie and slander and allow sarcasm and cynicism to frame how you use those words because you're in Christ. You're a saint set apart for a holy purpose. Your money. You might be in the world working a job, making money, owning a business, but... You are not to be of the world where you're working for yourself, for your own name, for your own fame, and borrowing practices from the world, exploitation. You know, technically I can get away with this, so I'm just going to do it. 
Instead, you are figuring out how do I work as an employee, as an employee, as an employer, so that it so that it somehow reveals to those who are paying attention, I'm working for the Lord, not for men. I'm working for more than a paycheck. I'm working to bless and honor my coworkers. Everyone else comes into work and they're fine at this level of attitude and productivity, and I want to raise the bar. Not to shame anybody, but to represent the fact that I am here investing in Nelson, but I'm also in Christ. That means I'm going to bring a certain level of ambition and intensity and integrity that maybe some other people around me won't bring. Or entertainment. We're in the world. We're going to watch TV. We're going to watch movies. We're going to read books. But we're not of the world, meaning we're careful and discerning about what books we read, why we're reading them, what entertainment we participate in and take into our hearts and imaginations and why we're doing these things. We're sensitized to saying, hey, I thought that was fine, but as I've been reading or watching this, I really feel like it's interfering with my walk with God, so therefore I'm cutting it off. Even if it's popular, even if everyone else around us is saying like, oh, this is awesome, this is no big deal. We might be in Nelson, but we're also in Christ, so I say, you know what, this is um, inconsistent. This is not helping me to flourish in my walk with Jesus, so I'm saying no to it. There's a letter called the letter of, letter two, sorry, Diognetus, who was a Roman emperor in the second century. This letter was written about 100 years after the book of Ephesians. So 62 AD as Ephesians is written. This is about 150 to 175 AD. <clears throat> and it highlights, it's a letter written by a Christian um, to the Roman emperor to say, this is why there's persecution and this is why you think we're so strange, but I want to help you to understand. Sorry, it's not written by a Christian, I don't believe. It was written by a, a Roman historian, uh, an officer who's writing to Rome and kind of saying, this is how you should understand Christians. And it does a really good job of highlighting how some of the first and earliest Christians were being in the world but not of it. This is what the letter says. Christians live in their native country, but they do so as outsiders. They participate in everything like citizens and tolerate all things as foreigners. Every foreign place is their homeland, and every homeland is foreign to them. Like other people, they marry and have children, but they do not expose their young. Exposing the young means when you had a child that was deformed physically or was clearly something wrong with it, you would just expose it out in the wilderness and it would die. So they marry and have children, but they do not expose their young. They provide a common meal, but they don't provide a common bed. They're promiscuous with the resources, but not with their bodies. They happen to be in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They're real people. They're not some kind of spiritual robots that have dropped out of the sky. They're real, but they're not governed and driven by these impulses. They serve a higher purpose. They spend time on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey fixed laws, but their lifestyles rise above the laws. They love everyone, but are persecuted by all. They're misunderstood and are condemned. They're put to death, but they're made alive. They're poor, but they enrich many. They lack all things, but they prosper in everything. They're dishonored, but are glorified in their dishonored. They are slandered, but then they're acquitted. They're disparaged, and they bless. They're insulted, but they offer respect. When doing good, they're punished as evil, but when being punished, they rejoice as people being brought to life. They're attacked as foreigners by Jews 
and they're persecuted by Greeks, and those who hate them cannot even explain the reason for their hostility. And you read that, and I read that, and part of my thing is like, oh, man, I should, that's where we've got to be as a church. We've got to try so much harder. And Paul would say, no, you don't have to try harder because you don't live that kind of expression of faith by simply trying harder. You do it by discovering who you are in Jesus and allowing that identity to transform how you live in the world. That's why Paul spends three full chapters confronting Ephesians on the issue of identity before he moves into, therefore, this is how you live into this calling that you have. The sequence is identity drives behavior. And we have too many, too many of us have um, bought into the idea that to grow as a Christian means simply just working on the behavior part while leaving the identity part um, unaddressed. So who we are, we're saints. Where we are, we are in Ephesus and in Christ Jesus. And lastly, what you have. Verse three, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every spiritual blessing can also be translated all blessings of the Spirit. So there's a Trinitarian focus here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every blessing of the Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Christians have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Paul wants the Ephesians to know right out of the gate, you are spiritually rich. And that's important because in Ephesus, wealth was all around them. I talked about this in the context. One of the seven wonders of the world, the great temple of Diana or Artemis was in Ephesus and it was a massive center for idolatrous worship but it was also one of the ancient world's largest banks. It made money hand over fist. Ephesus was on a huge a port and road trade route. And there were signs of wealth all around these early believers. And Paul says, you have been given, past tense, you, it, it is yours, not you could get it, or it's being given to you. You've been given every spiritual blessing, every blessing of the Spirit in Christ. And that's Paul, Paul's way of saying, God the Father has given you every spiritual blessing of the Spirit, and that means you don't lack anything to have a fruitful, satisfying Christian life. You don't lack anything. And spiritual blessings, I do believe, absolutely have to be distinguished and are intentionally being distinguished here from material blessings, which are also given by God, but material blessings nowhere in the New Testament are promised to all believers. Every spiritual blessing is promised to every believer in Jesus. Now, let's take an honest moment when you hear that, you're like, I love having every spiritual blessing. But if I have a little bit more material blessing, I wouldn't mind that either. Like, can it be both and? <laughs> in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, after God has rescued his people, they have, in fear, turned their backs on him. He says, you're going to wander for 40 years. I'm going to let the one generation die out. Then I'm going to let this next generation who's actually going to follow me go into the promised land. In Deuteronomy, he makes a series of promises, and he says, if you obey me in the promised land, Israel, I will give you tremendous material prosperity that will even come outside of your uh, having to work for it. In Deuteronomy 28.13, God says, if you pay attention to the commands of the Lord your God that I give you this day, and if you carefully follow them, 
you will always be at the top, never at the bottom. And he means that materially. Other nations will look at you and be like, well, you will be the envy of every nation materially. You'll be on the top of the economic pyramid. People are like, yes, that's awesome. That sounds great. I want that deal. God says this in Deuteronomy 6, though. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities that you didn't build, houses filled with all kinds of good things that you didn't provide, wells that you didn't dig, vineyards and olive groves that you didn't plant. And then when you eat and you are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. What you see in the Old Testament is in the Old Covenant, even though God promises material prosperity to his people, and Israel experiences times and seasons of tremendous prosperity, and even times where they are the envy of the other nations in terms of the economic hierarchy. Generally speaking, material prosperity introduced ruin into Israel's life. Generally speaking, material blessing interfered with Israel's ability to faithfully respond to God. And not just in terms of mission, but in terms of intimacy and connection. The prophets will often talk to Israel and say, look at you, you're callous, you're indifferent, you're fat and overfed, you're comfortable, you're complacent, and ultimately you're idolatrous and you're wicked as a result of all of this material prosperity. In Isaiah 1, verses 2 to 4, God says, Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's master and manager, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord, and they have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him pouring out material blessings on a people who aren't spiritually transformed is just a recipe for a, a slow train wreck. It just kind of happens all the time. Even happens today with people who win the lottery and then six, eight, 10, 12 months later, their lives are in a worse state, even economically in a worse state than they were when they won. In the new covenant, God says, I am going to give you every spiritual blessing. And for some Christians, in God's sovereignty, he blesses with tremendous wealth and prosperity. And if that's you, thank God for it and humbly get on your knees and say, God, may it never change my heart and give, save, and spend in a way that honors God because God will not let material prosperity interfere with spiritual vibrancy long-term. So God does bless people today with material blessings, but Paul wants the Ephesians to know that everybody Man, woman, and child, young or old, slave or free, rich or poor, has access to every spiritual blessing in Christ. What are those spiritual blessings? Verse four following, we'll get into this next week, but if just, you know, a few that Paul highlights there, you've been chosen by God, you've been elected to a divine purpose, you've been adopted as sons and daughters of God with all the rights of sonship, you have an inheritance waiting for you in heaven, you have redemption and forgiveness in full, all of those things not contingent on your obedience. If you obey all my commands, then I will adopt you. No. If, you, if I adopt you, but you don't obey all of these commands carefully, I will unadopt you. No. You will be forgiven as long as you obey all these things. No. 
The new covenant is you have been given all these things because you are in Christ. Now they are yours. And they are in the heavenly realms, which doesn't mean they're far away and don't have application. What it means is they're protected. Jesus said, be careful where you store your treasure. Because if you store it up on earth, it can get stolen, it can rust away, moths can get at it. So instead, store up treasure in heaven because there it's protected and you will be able to enjoy it forever. Paul says, you have every spiritual blessing and those blessings are untouchable and one day you will have full access to them. You might be going through a really, really difficult time in your life. But how quickly would your disposition change if you found out that in six months from now, a trust fund that had $100 million was being released to you that you didn't know existed? That would not necessarily transform your experience of hardship between now and six months, or maybe even after. But it would change your outlook. And it would give you that sense of, oh, something is coming down the pipe which absolutely informs and changes my present. And Paul says, you have a spiritual trust fund being kept for you, a full inheritance. And even if the only dimension of that you can think through is you're gonna have a resurrected body one day that cannot be touched by sin in a new heavens and new earth, any experience that you missed out on in life, you'll have the rest of eternity, so you don't need to live with any kind of FOMO, fear of missing out, or any kind of anxiety. It's all yours, it's all coming down the pipe. That doesn't mean your life now to when Jesus returns or to, you, to when you go to heaven is easy, but it becomes much easier to live in the hope of that expectation. And that's only one dimension of the spiritual blessing that you have as a Christian. And so from these verses, who you are and where you are and what you have, I hope you can begin to appreciate that many people point to studies through the book of Ephesians as a major turning point in a spiritual life. I'm going to read you one of those next week. But many people have said it was in the book of Ephesians that God just turned me on to this amazing reality of life in Christ and how to live out of that identity. By God's grace and power, you've been given a new identity as a saint. And as a saint, you've been placed in Nelson to live as light in a way that points to Christ as you live in him. And for that mission, God hasn't meted out a few spiritual blessings to help you along the way. He has given you access by the Holy Spirit of God to every spiritual blessing so that you can fulfill that mission and you can powerfully impact this world for Jesus. And so go, live who you are, live where you are, and live with what God has given you for his glory and the world's good. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it challenges us, regardless of stage of life and how we came in the doors this morning. These are truths that all of us need to hear, and Holy Spirit, you need to You need to just solidify this stuff in our hearts so that they're not just ideas, but they, this is a revelation of who we are in you and how we're called to live. Do the work that needs to be done so that we live into 
this vision and live out of our identity in you. As people who were sinners, past tense, now have been saved by grace and are saints learning to live out of that identity. God, as we prepare for this time of communion, may we do so reflecting on who we are in you and where we are in you and what you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.